Hello, everyone, and welcome to Staffer, the show about people who work in government or politics at any level and what they take from the experience. I'm your host, Jim Papa, a partner at Global Strategy Group and a former staffer myself. Our guest today is Gautam Raghavan, director of the White House Office of Presidential Personnel. The Office of Presidential Personnel, or PPO as it's known, is responsible for the recruitment, vetting, and nominating of more than 4,000 presidential appointees in federal agencies across the U.S. government. It is an enormous endeavor. Its work is never done, and it is enormously important. PPO is where every administration turns for the people who will staff essential posts. And for anyone who wants to serve in an administration, it is a central hub. Reflecting the importance that President Biden has placed on filling the government with talented public servants, Gautam was the first employee hired by the Biden-Harris transition team. Immediately prior to entering the Biden White House, Gautam spent time on Capitol Hill. There, he served as chief of staff to Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal, who represents the 7th District of Washington and is the chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus. But this isn't Gautam's first stint in the White House. Before going to Capitol Hill, Gautam served in the Obama White House as liaison to both the LGBTQ community and the Asian American and Pacific Islander communities. And before that, he was a White House liaison at the Department of Defense. Gautam is a first-generation immigrant. He was born in India, raised in Seattle, and graduated from Stanford University. He is also the editor of a book that I strongly recommend for anyone in this business. It's called West Wingers, Stories from the Dream Chasers, Change Makers, and Hope Creators Inside the Obama White House. It is a great and moving read. Gautam and I recorded this episode on Monday, February 28th. Gautam Raghavan, welcome to Staffer. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm glad to be here. I am so honored to have you. You are my first current West Winger. Um, to be on uh, the show. So I, I greatly appreciate your time and I'm, I'm so respectful of it. So as you may know, I like to start my interviews at the beginning. Uh, and as I understand, you were born in India and you came here at a young age with your parents and moved to Washington State. So can you tell me a bit about the circumstances that brought you here and what growing up was like? Yeah, absolutely. No, that's exactly right. I was, I was born in India. Um, and when I was about uh, two and a half years old, we actually moved first to Atlanta. My uh, dad was getting his PhD, uh, or so I should say, started a PhD program, and so brought um, my mom and me um, to Atlanta. And we were there for, I don't know, it wasn't that long, six or nine months, um, when he ended up getting a job offer at a company in Seattle. And back then, you know, if you were a new immigrant, um, especially working in sort of in engineering, which is what my dad is, he's an engineer, you got a job offer, it basically was the promise of citizenship, right? Basically, you, you would, your company would sponsor you, you go work, um, and it was, it was, it was the, the ticket, right, <laughs> to sort of make it in America. Um, so he quit his PhD program, we up and moved to the suburbs of Seattle, which is where I grew up, um, and lived there until I left for college. Um, you know, as I said, my, my dad's an engineer, um, he does stuff that I don't entirely understand, but I think he'd probably say the same about me. Um, and my mom, um, midway through my childhood, went back to school um, and got and got trained as an interior designer. So the very different parts of the brain between my two parents. Uh, but it somehow works. So around the dinner table, did you talk much about current affairs or politics or did you discover that later? You know, we actually didn't talk a whole lot of politics at the dining room table. Um, you know, growing up uh, when we immigrated, my parents were living in India 
which was going through sort of a, a difficult political time, right? There was a lot of corruption, a lot of bribery and nepotism and that kind of thing. Um, my dad actually got his start in the Indian civil service, which was a, a common career trajectory for folks back then. They'd go to good schools and they'd go join the, they join the government. My grandfather was in the government as well. Um, but, you know, after a few years, after what he saw, he witnessed a lot of um, a lot of that kind of corruption um, and decided it wasn't the right it wasn't the right career path for him and decided to leave. So growing up, you know, when we would talk about politics, especially Indian politics, it was in the connotation of, um, you know, sort of a broken system that was left behind. So uh, I read your book, West Wingers, uh, stories from the dream chasers, change makers and hope creators inside the Obama White House. And in it, your essay um, describes your experience. You were an undergraduate at Stanford. Uh, you were involved in politics and you write really movingly about coming out and how that was both a personal choice and a political one, given what was happening in the country at that time. So can you uh, talk to us about that? Yeah, that's exactly right. And in fact, in, in many ways, my coming out um, was really my first political act um, because I, you know, I was like obviously watching what was happening and paying attention to the news, but I wasn't really political. I wasn't doing political things until the summer before my senior year when I was in Washington, D.C. And, um, you know, it was the summer of, uh, you know, right before the 2004 election. So President Bush was using marriage, right, gay marriage as a way of sort of mobilizing the Republican base. Um, you had Democrats who were in, who were in various uh, uh, stages of evolution on in terms of civil unions and marriage equality. And um, I started dating somebody. And that that for me really sort of crystallized both my personal identity, obviously, you know, like being more comfortable and coming out to my friends and later my family. Um, but it, all of a sudden, everything became very political, right? Because it was about my freedom, my ability to live openly, to sort of um, pursue a relationship. And with, especially with an, oppos an opposing force with, you know, my government at the time telling me I couldn't do that, it felt like getting involved was both very personal and very political. So uh, you, you watched President Obama's uh, famous convention speech in 2004. You were moved by it. You decided you're going to continue in politics. Um, you later moved to Washington, D.C. and uh, worked at the DNC uh, in, in the fundraising department as, and eventually became uh, Midwest finance director. When President Obama won in 2008, um, you got the opportunity to go uh, work for his administration. And as I understand it, you became um, ultimately a liaison uh, between the White House and the Department of Defense. The position of White House liaison is not very well understood. So can you describe what that role is for people who may not know about it? Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I started off as a special assistant to the White House liaison. And, you know, these liaisons are at every major department and agency. And they work very closely with the office. I now have the honor of leading presidential personnel um, to find, recruit, interview, and place political appointees across the department. So DOD has always had by far the most um, appointees at both the, the most senior level and, and the junior and mid-levels as well. And so for me, it was a real opportunity to get to know how government works. Um, you know, uh, a friend of mine, a, a friend and a mentor, told me that if you want to really learn how government works, go to the Defense Department. They have the most people, the most 
money, the most programs they touch, literally every issue, right? From mental health to they're the largest school system in, in the world, I believe. Um, you know, the, the Defense Department is one of the largest employers. Wow. All, every issue you can possibly think of, they will touch. And by extension, the people who you can bring on there can have a huge impact across a, a range of issues. So um, that's how I landed there. You know, the, the job um, was really focused on people, finding the right people to bring in. We were also, you know, at the start of the Obama administration, it was the only de- department that had a, a holdover secretary. The president asked Secretary Gates to stay on. And so it was a really interesting dynamic to sort of have some folks who stayed from the former administration while bringing on, you know, new appointees as well. But it was it was um, two and a half years and it was amazing. It was a wonderful opportunity. So in 2011, after you've been serving at DOD, you are then asked by the White House to come inside and work in the Office of Public Engagement as a liaison to both the LGBTQ community and also the Asian Pacific and Pacific Islander communities. Um, You know, looking back on that window of time in the Obama administration, many reflect on it fondly because of the evolution, particularly on LGBTQ issues. But as you write about in West Wingers, it was a really excruciating time uh, in many ways. And you were right there at the crux. Um, so can you uh, you know, describe for our listeners the underlying issue, right? The, the, the shift from no longer defending DOMA you know, in the courts to supporting full marriage equality, and what it felt like to be the person who was right there in the breach between the administration and the LGBTQ community. Yeah, you know, in, in, uh, I think when it's all said and done, folks will look at the eight years of the Obama-Biden administration and the trajectory around legal advancements, you know, um, the, the narrative around LGBTQ equality as being really formative years, right? I mean, so much happened in that period of time. Um, You know, a lot of it is, uh, uh, I owe a lot of uh, gratitude to my predecessor in the role, Brian Bond, who was the first LGBTQ liaison um, for the first, basically the first two and a half years of the Obama administration, who got a lot of incoming, right? Because folks were were thirsty for change. Um, It had been a long time since there was someone who could be seen as an ally in the White House, I mean, arguably, like no one that who, who had campaigned on LGBTQ equality in the way that the president had. And so, um, you know, he took a lot of incoming uh, and, and got a lot of amazing things done in the first couple of years. You know, the hate crimes bill, um, changing, uh, lifting the HIV travel ban. There was so much more setting, the, you know, laying the groundwork for marriage equality. And so when I got there, we had, we had taken that first incredibly important step, right, which is that the Department of Justice at the president's direction was no longer going to defend the Defense of Marriage Act in the courts. Um, that, so what that meant was, you know, the sort of legal posture of the U.S. government was that we, we were not going to defend this law. So now, you know, the states can sort of have at it. Um, and that would take, you know, two years, two and a half years for those court cases to move through the various systems. You know, there was a, a bunch of these. Windsor is the one that sort of, you know, made it to the Supreme Court. At the same time, you have you know, Proposition 8 in California. And so, we were in this time of evolving, you know, legal understanding of marriage equality. Um, a lot of arguments that were being put, in, put out there. We were building on the, the sort of successful repeal of Don't Ask, Don't Tell, which I think really crystallized for a lot of people the kind of inequality you see uh, among service members and their families when uh, they don't have access to all the benefits of marriage uh, that their straight counterparts get. 
So it was this really interesting change um, in what we could and couldn't do. The other thing is, you know, by that point we had lost the Senate. Um, and so we were operating in a, in a posture of, well, you know, legislatively, there may not be as much that you can get done. So what are your other opportunities for change? Um, and so it really came down to what could happen in the courts and what could happen through executive action. Uh, and that was, you know, for the three years that I was in the role, that was really where the focus was. So there's this uh, section of your essay where you are called into Valerie Jarrett's office. You are told the president is going to endorse marriage equality. You need to, one, you know, keep it a secret. <laughs> don't, don't go ahead of the president. <laughs> but at the same time, you're going to be the one delivering the news uh, to many uh, in, in the community. So can you walk us through, you know, that half an hour to, to three hour period? Yeah, you know, it's so vivid in my mind. I remember <laughs> every moment of sort of, being told, sitting down at that table and being told this, and then saying, you know, go back to your office, you can't tell, and then coming back over to the EEOB. Um, and of course, my colleagues knew something was up, but they also knew better than to ask me what the thing was. And, you know, the, the next couple of hours were just sort of a blur. You know, we were, we were planning for how to, how to sort of roll this out. And uh, I don't remember whose call it was, but the best advice we got was you just have to let the president speak for himself, right? Because this is about him articulating in his voice as, as the leader, right? Um, why he has come to this place and, and what were the reasons that, that got him there? And I think that was absolutely the right decision, right? I, that, that Robin Roberts interview, um, he explained it best. And he talked about um, his kids and what he heard from them about um, their gay friends or people that they knew. He talked about, as I said, service members and the, the experience of repealing Don't Ask, Don't Tell and uh, troops he had talked to who were gay or lesbian. So we really couldn't have asked for a better messenger um, than the president himself in that moment in time. So you also describe in your essay, you know, that that tension that probably every staffer feels at some moment in their career, but perhaps not as personally as you are experiencing, where you want the boss to go further, or maybe the boss has a position that you really disagree with, um, but they're not moving. And you talked about even thinking about, you know, you didn't fully contemplate resigning, but it was sort of back there. Like, is that something I need to grapple with? What is your advice to people who might be in similar situations where, you know, they support 95% of, of what the boss is about, but there's a really important remaining 5%. Um, you know, how should they think about that? Because some cases, in some cases, we know it is time to resign. And there, there are people on, you know, who work for public officials today that I wonder, why haven't you resigned yet? It's long past due. Um, those, you know, those are clearer to me than this, this other dynamic that I'm talking about, where you're making progress, but there's still something, something left undone. Yeah, well, well, I think the first thing I'd say is, you know, we always have to remember who got the electoral votes, right? Like the, the boss is the boss for a reason. Um, and we serve at the pleasure of the president, all of us do in, in the administration. And so at the end of the day, it's, it's his call, right? Um, his or her, I should say. But it, in this case, it's his call. Um, and so the best thing you can do as a staffer and really as a citizen, I guess, as well, is to give the decision maker as much information as possible um, give them the sort of additional components that are not factual, right? Like what is the, you know, what is the moral case for something? What are, what are the stories behind um, what we're pushing for? And that's something, you know, I, I think that makes, especially around LGBTQ quality has made a huge impact is hearing people's stories, um, you know, about 
whether it was, as, as we've been talking about marriage equality, but also I think so much of the shift around trans rights and equality has been hearing from people who are transgender or non-binary or parents of kids. I mean, that's really, there's, there's a lot of power behind that. And so as staffers or as advocates or activists, you know, whatever your role is, I think the best thing you can do is just is give as much information, provide as much information as possible and, you know, and hope that the boss makes the right call. Um, and so it may not always move as fast as you would like it to. I've, I've seen that firsthand, right? But I think um, in, on a lot of the issues I've had the chance to work on, I have seen such tremendous um, change over time that I can't help but still be really optimistic that, that ultimately we sort of, we get there. Um, but it does, you know, it can be hard sometimes. Yeah. Um, okay. There are two more uh, stops on your resume that I want to ask you about before I talk about your current position. Um, when you left the White House, you went to work for the Gill Foundation, uh, which is one of the nation's leading funders of efforts to secure full equality for LGBTQ people. You were the vice president of policy. And there you ran multi-million dollar, multi-state campaigns that resulted in legislative and regulatory and administrative actions um, in making meaningful progress in eight different states. Um, You had just been, when you were in the White House, a liaison to the community, and then you went and worked for a leading organization within the community. What did you learn in that experience that when you reflect back on the time at OPE, you think, oh, that would have been, you know, that's a helpful perspective that I, you know, if I went back into the, uh, into the West Wing, I would take with me. Well, I think, um, you know, uh, one of the things that I've noticed over my career is that the most effective uh, operatives, whether they're in government or advocates or philanthropy or wherever they are, are folks who've sort of seen change from different perspectives, right? They've, they've sort of been an activist on the front lines, they've been in government, they've been in philanthropy, wherever it may be, right? So for me, the opportunity to do this work and to help sort of, you know, direct funds towards where I thought we could really make a difference was exciting. And I, and I thought it would give me a great perspective of what, what it looks like to be on the, on the outside, you know, looking in and you sort of, you don't have as much information in real time. So you're trying to operate off of relationships and what you think might be possible. You know, back then I was also trying to take a lot of what we learned at the federal level and figure out how do we do that at the state level, right? Because the answer is not, and it still continues to elude us that there's not a federal law, right? Like the, like the Equality Act. And so in the absence of that, you got to figure out, well, what can you do um, to sort of make a patchwork of equality around the country? And so, um, you know, Gil was and, and still continues to fund a lot of great work around state regulatory change, administrative change. You know, how do we get governors or mayors to do what they can within their own power? Um, and so that was a lot of the, the basis of my work there. But uh, I think having that experience was was helpful, right, to sort of understand, you know, now that I'm removed from this position in the White House, how are activists talking to each other? You know, what frustrates them? What inspires them? What do they really think about what's happening on the inside? I think it's a useful perspective to have and, and probably pretty humbling too. Yeah. Well, speaking of perspective, uh, when you left the Gill Foundation, you did spend some time at the Biden Foundation, um, but you went to work on Capitol Hill. And a lot of folks yep. who work in both the White House and on Capitol Hill do it in the other order, right? They work on Capitol Hill first, then they go into the White House. But you served as chief of staff to Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal uh, from Washington State. and. She, uh, in addition to to representing her district, is also chair of the Progressive Caucus. Now, Capitol Hill and the executive branch are near and dear to my heart. Article one and Article two, uh, right of the Constitution. Yeah. But they're different animals. 
um, who see each other, you know, differently and have different functions. So I'm, I'm curious if you could reflect on that experience as well. Um, what you, what sort of insight you gained about governing and interplay between the executive branch from the, the Capitol Hill perspective? Yeah, no, it, it was, it's definitely a different, you're right. They're different beasts for sure. Very different culture, very different perspective on how things happen. Um, you know, I, I landed there um, not because I had any sort of grand design to go work um, in the legislative branch, but really because of the congresswoman. Um, she's someone who I, our families have known each other for 60 years. Um, you know, her mom and my grandmother went to college together in India. Oh, and when wow. she, um, and so growing up in the Seattle suburbs, you know, I knew her as this sort of, you know, kind of badass rock star activist who was out there organizing people, um, suing the Bush administration around the deportation of, of immigrants, um, and really like holding people's feet to the fire in a way that I didn't see a whole lot of South Asian American or Asian American um, organizers or activists doing. So to me, she was always just this like, you know, really interesting, really smart, tenacious leader in the community. And when she ran for Congress and won, um, you know, watching her uh, sort of thrive and lead there was was really inspiring. And so for me, it was the opportunity to work with someone who's practically family, right, to sort of go help her, um, especially at this pivot time where now that they have the majority of the House, but you're still in opposition to a president who's doing everything that is antithetical to what you stand for as a progressive. Um, so, uh, and it was an amazing opportunity. You know, we had a, a great team. Um, we got to work on a lot of really exciting stuff. Um, you know, it, again, a great perspective to sort of see how things happen on the leg or don't happen sometimes in the legislative branch and like the dynamics there, because my experience to date had been entirely, um, either in the executive branch or on the outside. So just, I mean, just the experience of learning how the committees work and how members and leadership works and how they communicate with each other was, was just really, a, a, you know, an incredible experience. Well, um, you have been a staffer in the administration, a staffer, um, you know, in the White House on Capitol Hill, and you now head the Office of Presidential Personnel um, as a staffer. But nonetheless, it's a, it's a unique staffer role because you are like the, the hub of, every, you know, where everyone who wants to work um, as a political appointee in an administration comes through your office. Um, can you describe the role of the office and its scope? Yeah. Um, well, first, let me start by saying I love my job. And I realize that not everyone gets to say that in the world. So I'm, I am incredibly lucky that I, I enjoy what I get to do and the team I get to work with. But it's exactly as you said, you know, our job is to, is to help fill all these political appointments across the administration from the most senior, right, from the cabinet on down to um, the, the mid-ranks, the special assistants and confidential assistants, the researchers. Um, and it's, it's just an amazing opportunity. You know, we, we, we say here in PPO that people are policy. I tweet it out all the time. Um, and we really mean it. You, you have to really like people and working with people to do this job, right? Because it's all about helping find the best talent to go into these positions that, as you said, hundreds of people want the opportunity and we have to figure out, well, what's the right mix of people we need to serve this president and help execute his agenda? So I don't know. I feel like we're incredibly lucky to be able to do that work. So people are policy. That is a phrase that 
um, has really come, uh, you know, come on people's radar screen just in the last few years. So can you describe, you know, what that means and how that informs your, your day-to-day work? Yeah, well, when we say people are policy, really what we're trying to get at is that uh, if we want outcomes that are good for all of the American people, we need all of the American people working on policy, right? We need them in the rooms. We need them represented in conversations. Um, we need the uh, expertise, the perspectives they bring. You know, I think back, you know, to what we were talking about earlier about the, the changes we saw around LGBTQ equality in the Obama-Biden administration. And almost everywhere we saw policy change, one of, us, one of our people was in the room, right? They were sort of helping drive that change. They were helping tell their own stories. Um, they were, you know, pushing just a little bit. And so that's what we mean when we say people are policy is that we're not going to get um, uh, outcomes and results that work for everybody unless we really are inclusive about who's involved with, uh, with the administration. Mm-hmm. Now, you are in the midst of a process where you are just having to select among so many talented people, as you said. And yes, you want um, the right you know, mix from a macro scale, but on the micro scale, when you're trying to evaluate candidates, what are some things that, you know, separate the outstanding from the average? It's such a good question. And I, I look, I don't, I don't, I don't uh, claim that we have complete mastery of it all the time, right? We, we do the best that we can, and we certainly have done as much as we can to learn from past PPO offices. Um, we did a lot of work on transition to talk to uh, people who had done, you know, at scale hiring to sort of understand from them, how do you do this smartly? And one of the things that we learned um, and that we've incorporated into how we, we screen candidates and interview them is that, uh, you know, technical expertise, subject matter expertise is important, but it is not sufficient. It's not, it is not all you need for, for success in a job. And so we really look for other things that, that, um, are going to help create the right team, right? So we look for, you know, collaborativeness. We look for things like intellectual humility. Um, we certainly look for, you know, values alignment, right? One of the first questions we ask is, why do you want to serve in this administration? And the answer can't be because I'd be good at my job. That's great, and we want we want people to be good at their job, but we also want to know like what drives you. Like, what about President Biden's agenda is motivating you to want to serve? What about this moment in time is interesting to you, right? Or what is like inspiring you to? drop any number of other things you could be doing, whether in the private sector or in your local community to come and do this work. Um, because at the end of the day, you know, needs shift over time, policy objectives shift. And if you have the right team in place um, and people who are going to approach this from a like deeply personal values driven place and are going to be good team workers with each other, um, that we have found is ultimately what matters most. Boy, that's such a good point about how, you know, how quickly things change. Even when you're hiring someone for uh, some expertise, chances are in a year, <laughs> things are going to change so substantially that they may find themselves working on different things or only adjacent things. So how they get along and, and work with others, as well as what is that motor inside of them? Like what's the values driven motor um, that is committing them to the cause will be will really be so important for the functionality of the whole office. Yeah, that's exactly right. And, and just to put it in perspective from the start of the administration, right, we, we, we knew going in, we would need volume, a large volume of people on day one to get to work because we had a lot to do. The president had all these executive orders. We knew we were inheriting multiple crises and we didn't even have our whole cabinet confirmed, right? And so 
you know, if you, if you step back from this project and take out all the factors, you would say, well, in an ideal situation, you'd have, you know, one person hire the next person and then they hire the next person and so on. That just wasn't possible. We had 78 days during the transition to build a team, right? Um, and remember, we had a delay in, in certifying the, the election. We had a delay in ascertainment by the General Services Administration. We had all these roadblocks. We didn't know if we were going to have a Senate or not. And in all that, you have to start to build a team because you certainly can't go in on day one and no one's there to answer the phone or write a press release or you, you need lawyers, you need people who can talk to the Hill. And so we built this team, again, uh, with, with folks not necessarily knowing each other, not knowing who their supervisors would be. And that's why it was so important to look for those, those skills and traits that would help people be successful and adapt because things are going to change over time. And by the way, we're doing this all in the middle of COVID. And so it's all remote and folks are working from their bedrooms and they're not interviewing in person. So it's a, it's a huge challenge. And I think, you know, look, we're not going to get everything right, but I'm incredibly proud of what we were able to do. I'm really gra- glad that you summarized you know, that, that, that clock, because to your point, it's always excruciatingly difficult. Even when you have an election that ends in early November and everyone knows who's going to be taking office on January 20th and there's nothing you know disruptive in between. And there were so many disruptions and obstructions. Um, it's really incredible what you've done. You, you mentioned a couple of questions that you think are pertinent to the interview process. Do you have an off the beaten track question that you like to ask people? Well, so um, we always tell folks, you know, we have sort of like the core questions we want you to ask, but then we say, don't, don't be afraid to ask other questions, right? Like, you, you know, it's not like it's a script necessarily. Um, you know, I, I really start with the most important question, which is what, what, what drives you to serve? Like what motivates you to want to serve as a political appointee in an administration? And, you know, you'd be surprised how many people are not prepared to answer that question in a sort of meaningful way. Um, and so it, I think it really is sort of the why is really the most important to me. Yeah. Um, you mentioned vetting. Um, that is a hugely important part of what you do. Can you describe the vetting process for political appointees, um, just what what they should expect. Yeah, you know, it's it, it depends on what level of position someone's going in for, right? At the at the most senior levels, we do a pretty extensive vetting review. It's you know multiple interviews. It's going through people's finances and taxes and their social media history. Um, spoiler alert: Stop tweeting, everybody, please, um, because there's a lot out there. Um, and then, you know, separate from that, there's the, obviously the security clearance process for anyone who needs a clearance. Um, for the vast major- majority of our appointees, it's it's you know a public records check, right? We sort of see what's sort of out there publicly. Um, we talk to the candidates. We ask, are there any issues that could be disqualifying for you? Um, and so, you know, we, we try our best to get it right. Um, we have to do a lot more vetting now than I think we had to do, certainly when I served in the prior administration, um, because there's so much more that is public out there. And so, you know, and if you think about it, people who were, you know, teenagers and putting stuff on Facebook or Instagram or TikTok or whatever are now in their mid-20s and they may have forgotten about something they posted a long time ago and never thought that that would be an issue. But the fact is, like, in this in this world where everyone pays attention to social media, it is an issue. And so both for the candidate uh, to avoid them any embarrassment and certainly to avoid embarrassing the agency or the president, that's stuff we have to look for. You know, that change, um, not only does it have an impact on vetting, but I'm wondering, do you think being a staffer has changed at all? You know, I mean, you started out at DOD, um, you know, nearly 15 years ago. Do you think 
people who are coming in to take those types of roles that you had at DOD, do you think they need to, you know, think of their jobs differently? Uh, and I think this applies to Capitol Hill too, since you served there as well. Has there been an evolution in what it means to be a staffer, or do you think it's mostly stable? Uh, that's a great question. I don't. I don't know. Um, I look. I think. Let me put it this way. I think the quality of candidate that we see and get to interact with is very much the same, if not better. Right? We get. We have great talent um, coming into the administration. I, I do worry sometimes that um, that that with especially after what I see is four years of government really being undervalued and sort of denigrated and you know the work of federal civil servants being you know being referred to as they're like lazy or bureaucratic or whatever that there is a um, disincentive to pursue government service that that that's something that worries me right in the long term is how do we get people inspired about wanting to serve in the administration or serve in government at all even as a career civil servant or a foreign service officer or whatever when all you hear about is, or not all you hear about, but you often hear about um, sort of like these negative connotations for government service, right? So I think that's something that worries me. Um, and I hope that people understand. And I think certainly folks who are in the administration today, I think they see the impact that their work has on regular Americans, right? Whether it's around climate change or around um, helping people uh, recover from the, the pandemic, or right now that in the national security world, how important it is that we have strong, you know, really stable, thoughtful leadership in this administration. I think that's exactly right. And, you know, that that comes through not just in the impact of their work or for those who are public facing, but every one of those people in their private lives represents the government. Right. You don't when you are a staffer, mm -hmm. you, re you don't really take the hat off. Everyone around you knows you work for the government. And so your conduct and the way, you know, the way you think, the way you speak, it really, it does matter <laughs> to, right, to, to the universe in which you live, because there are ripples. So, you know, yep, hiring exactly. people with great integrity really matters. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and you know, especially for, uh, I think, for this president who has been so clear about what he's looking for and the importance of, you know, kindness and integrity and a real commitment to service. Um, I think it, it matters a lot. So as you zoom out, you know, when, whenever you get a chance to bring your head up above the waterline and say, okay, let me pause for a moment, check in, how are we doing? How do you, you know, how do you assess the state of staffing um, from your uh, leadership role at PPO? I mean, I feel great. I think we've, um, we've done a, a really, really remarkable job. Um, again, you know, in some of the most challenging circumstances possible, um, we have, we have built, um, by every metric, I believe the most diverse administration in history, you know, I, I the, the, one of the statistics that sticks with me and that hasn't really changed since in the last year or so is roughly one in three of our appointees is either, uh, an immigrant like I am, a naturalized citizen like I am, or the child of immigrants. I think that's remarkable, right? To think that there's so many people who are serving in this administration, um, who either they or their families immigrated from somewhere. I think that's just, that's really amazing. You know, 57%, I think right now of our appointees are women. Um, we're about 50% people of color at every level of seniority. So it's really, it's really exciting to see that kind of change. Um, and, you know, and, well, I, we were just talking about this the other day in our team, 
is so much of what our focus has been on is on the hiring part, right? We go and find people, we select them, we interview them, whatever. But we sometimes lose sight of what they go and do once they're in their jobs because they're busy. They're like out there doing great things, right? They don't have time to sort of report back. Um, but when we see how incredibly successful they are being and like the, the work product that they churn out, like that's the really exciting stuff, right? It's, so it's not just about hiring, you know, a talented and diverse group of people. It's what they go out there and then accomplish is um, really inspiring. Yep. Um, do you have advice for folks? So when they, when they get the job, when they get the job offer, um, what is your advice uh, to people? I think the number one thing is to, is to really focus on listening and learning, especially from um, career civil servants, or if you're at DOD from military counterparts or at the State Department or USAID from foreign service officers, um, because those are folks who've been there for years and they know how the place works and they understand how to navigate the bureaucracy and how to really accomplish things. And so, and I say this as someone who's married to a career civil servant who's been at state for 11 years, you know, you, you've got to listen to them because they're going to help you be successful. Um, and with their support and cooperation, you can go crush it. Um, the other thing I would say is to people who don't get a job, um, which I think is important too, right? We've spent a lot of time thinking about how do we, how do we better serve people who don't land right away or who've interviewed for a couple of different positions, but don't, you know, don't get a position. It's just remember that this is an ongoing project. We are going to be hiring every single year of the administration. It doesn't, it's not like we just stop, right? Like we fill all the jobs and we're done. The fact is people leave, they move, they get promoted needs change over time, you know, with the infrastructure bill, we're right now finding a bunch of people to help implement that. So, you know, it, it's hard, it can be discouraging, but I would just say to anyone who hasn't landed a job yet, just like hang in there, you know, be patient and we'll, uh, we'll hopefully it'll all work out. Oh, that is such a good point as well. Um, you have been so generous with your time. I have two remaining questions for you. Uh, these yep. are recurring segments uh, that I like uh, to ask my guests. One of them is called In the Vault. Can you tell us about a time as a staffer when you royally screwed up, what you did and how you recovered from it? Oh, so I, this, I don't know that I would call this a royal screw up, but it was embarrassing, which is my um, first, it was like my first or second week as the LGBTQ liaison in the White House we set up a meeting with all the key community leaders and stakeholders um, and with Valerie Jarrett, who was my boss, um, to sort of like introduce me to them and like, you know, let's take a minute to sort of reflect on where we are. What, do you, what are you guys pushing for? What's the agenda? In the Roosevelt Room in the West Wing, it's like probably my first or second time ever in there. And again, this sounds so silly, but I sat in like the president's chair, which is a chair in the middle. It's like slightly taller than all the other ones. And literally someone turned to me and was like, you're, you're sitting in the wrong chair. And I had to like sort of find a gracious way of, of vacating the chair and sliding <laughs> one over. Okay. It's not so stupid, but like as like a, whatever, a 28 year old who's, you know, new in the job and wants to be taken seriously and is dealing with, and is surrounded by like your key stakeholders. Um, it was pretty embarrassing. So I don't know. That's the best I got right now. That's funny. Well, and knowing that that chair, you know, and all, there are all these little minor things that are part of White House etiquette that, you know, when yeah. you're new to the White House, you just don't know. And if yeah, somebody doesn't exactly. like tap you on the shoulder and sort of whisper it at you, you, you could be making those tiny little embarrassing mistakes, you know, every day. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. Fortunately, everyone was like very good humored about it. And <laughs> yeah. Val- Valerie never reminded me about it after that moment, <laughs> but in the moment just, it was embarrassing. Yeah. Just testing it. It, it still works. It's good. Yeah, um, exactly. <laughs> okay. Uh, my last one for you. I have this uh, fantasy that I could raise enough money and get all the permitting needed to build a hall of fame for staffers on the national mall. So if I were to build that building and ask you to nominate someone to the Stafford Hall of Fame, who would it be and why? Oh, there's too many good people to pick from. Um, but I will, I will pick the person who hired me, this is a little self-serving, who hired me on the transition, and that's Johannes Abraham, who ran uh, transition for President Biden and is now um, Chief of Staff of the National Security Council. And I, I say that because I... I had the chance to work with Johannes in the public engagement office, you know, back during the Obama years. Um, and then we stayed in touch. And when he called me about transition, I remember thinking to myself, they literally could not have asked a better person to be ED of the transition. And he did, you know, I just had like, I was like a bit of the personnel piece. He had the whole operation to run in the most difficult circumstances. And by literally every metric, uh, it was the most successful transition in history. Um, so I give Johannes a lot of credit for running a great operation from really thinking about, you know, values and culture from the very beginning with almost an entirely remote operation, right? A transition that was entirely virtual um, and delivering despite all the odds. So I, he'd be at the top of my list. Oh, that is such a good nomination. I know Johannes. He and I got to work together. Yeah. <laughs> I met him uh, in, in the Office of Legislative Affairs, where he was one of the junior people in that office at that time. Literally everything that Johannes has been a part of, as I've known his career, he has just blown out of the water. Every project, every job he's held, everyone around him knows how brilliant and caring and thoughtful a person he is. Um that is a tremendous, uh, tremendous nomination. So he's in first ballot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he's just a good guy, which, which yes, is important. That too. Yep. Um, I'm going to close by reading just a couple of sentences from the end of your essay uh, in West Wingers. You write, a young man's idealism can allow him to live fully and authentically and follow his dreams all the way to the White House. A society's capacity to learn, grow, and change can take an issue from politically toxic to common sense within a generation. I think that's such a nice coda to this episode. Um, I I wanted people uh, to hear from you and about you. You have such a busy job and life, and I can't thank you enough for spending this time with me and my audience. Well, thank you. I, I so much appreciate the opportunity. And for anyone who's listening, go to apply.whitehouse.gov, you know, fill out that application. We'd love to see you in the administration. Love it. Great plug. Thank you, Gautam. Thank you. Take care. I want to thank you all for listening to the only show created for and about the people who work in government and politics at any level. I do have a quick favor to ask. Please follow, subscribe, and like the show on all of your favorite podcast platforms. Positive reviews are everything in this business, I'm told. And make sure to sign up for episode alerts at staffershow.com and check out Staffer Show on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn. Thanks all.